Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Famous and popular SEC attorney in the nation. And we're going to go a bit more detail into some of the investment structures, some of the gotchas and ahas uh, that we want to watch out in uh, syndication, legal paperwork, investment structures, and anything else uh, that's related to the legal document and the way syndications are done. Hey, Jane, why not you tell our audience about yourself and... Um, you know, just about your company and what have been, you have sure. been doing and what, what kind of services do you offer? Sure. Well, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. I know we've talked several times, but it's fun to be on, uh, to be on your podcast here today. Uh, let's talk about my career, which really gets me to where I am today. I came out of college in the Midwest, Minnesota, and uh, went off to sell commercial real estate. So for about 10 years, I was a real estate broker, listing and selling uh, properties in the Twin Cities. And somewhere along the line there, I got my CCIM designation. And that was a uh, 40-year situation where I taught CCIM courses. I still carry my designation, but about two years ago, I I stopped being on the podium because my other business was was so busy. I couldn't take time. So after about 10 years of being a broker and buying some properties myself, I, like almost every other syndicator you'd know, James, found a property that I couldn't buy by myself and I needed other people's money. So I went out and raised money from other people and lo and behold, here I am a syndicator. And so I kind of like that. So the next 15, 16 years of my career I was just a syndicator. I gave up my real estate brokerage business and uh, became a sponsor and uh, primarily built self-storage facilities. We would buy the dirt, we would build the facility, we would sell the facility when it got to be, oh, 50, 60% leased up to an operator of storage facilities because that wasn't what we wanted to do. We wanted to build, make our profit and go on to the next uh, project. Well, At one point in time, I had about 850 investors, and uh, I remember I counted them one year, we sent out 1,676 K-1s. James, that's a workload. That's a lot of stamps. That's a lot of licking envelopes, a lot of stuff. And in those days, there were no white label back office uh, companies like there are today to help you do that. So it it was just my company. And uh, I was faced with a a position where I really thought I had to grow my company. I had to get bigger, I had to do other things. And I decided that uh, maybe I didn't wanna do that. Maybe I didn't wanna be a bigger real estate syndicator than I was. So James, I went home and and, uh, sat with my wife around the kitchen table where all the great decisions in life are made, you know? And uh, I said, what am I gonna do for the next 15 years? Cause I thought I'd retire at about 60 and do something else. And I decided to go to law school. 
So when I was 45, after having a career as a commercial broker teaching and uh, being a syndicator, I went off to a law school and became a lawyer and uh, liked that so much. Uh, I've been doing that now for 27 years. I should have retired, you know, 12 years ago, but I didn't. And I like it. And the only law I've ever practiced is law having to do with securities, uh, primarily in the area of Regulation D, Rule 506, which is what we're going to talk about. So here, when what I think is important about me and what I try to market about me is I've been all over the commercial uh, real estate brokerage and ownership. I've been all over syndication myself, working with passive investments, investors. I've, I've raised money through the broker-dealer community. Uh, I've done all that, and now I bring all that practical experience to my law practice, and uh, seems to make seems to make a difference. And like I said, that's that's all I do. How's that, James? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, we have a lot of listeners who are passive investors, but also a lot of uh, active investors listening to this podcast because we really go into the detail part of the business, right? Especially on, uh, on multifamily, which is what the asset class that I focus sure. on, right? So let's go to some of the details um, uh, on, in terms of experience that you have been, right? You have, you have been like almost, you said 27 years doing uh, right. <laughs> regulation. That's a lot of experience there. What is the most weirdest syndication that you have to do? I mean, not syndication, most weirdest uh, syndication paperwork that you have to do to buy what? Oh, well, when a client comes to me, they already have a letter of intent signed on the property, more than likely. Uh -huh. And they have, they're in negotiation for the purchase and sale agreement. Okay. The letter of intent and the purchase and sale agreement are generally uh, related to the state in okay. which the property is located. So I, okay. I can't really get involved in that unless it's in California, mm -hmm. where I'm a California attorney. So uh, I uh, get hold, started. Hold on, Gene. I think I, maybe I, I didn't put my questions correctly. So what was the weirdest syndication that you have to write the paperwork for? Is it like to buy oh, an aeroplane, oh. to buy a ship? Is oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. So yeah. anyhow, people come to me and, and then I write the syndication paperwork. Probably okay. the most interesting one I've yeah, done interesting one. was a, um, a school. A fellow uh, back east in the, in the Maryland area was teaching, and you might be interested in this approach, James, mm -hmm. he was teaching uh, people how to invest. And he came to me and said, I wanted, I want to do this. And his story was he wanted to do um, raised money from 35 people and himself being 36 uh, in a class, in a classroom setting, $10,000 from everyone. He'd raise $360,000 and then he would take everyone step by step through the process of uh, hiring an attorney, finding a property, rehabbing the property, selling the property, all the documents, and sharing the profits. And that was his class. You couldn't take the class unless you invested uh, $10,000. And they were all, um, all sophisticated investors because they had gone through his training. And uh, uh, that was pretty interesting. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was very clever. But why you wanna do that rather than just paying the $10,000? 
Well, he needed $350,000 to buy a property. Oh, he's buying. Okay, got it, got it. They got bought, it. They bought oh, so a he property. So he syndicated within the class, classroom in members. Class, yeah, yes. and okay, everyone was involved in the process. Oh, interesting. The decisions and they shared oh the okay, so everybody learned it. Okay. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You come to my class, but you have to invest in my deal, but I'm going to teach yeah, you everything. He right? only just... did that once. Okay, got but, it. Um, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So one of the things that... Um, that I've been going through recently is not because I've I've been doing my own deals on my own. I, I really usually don't look at other people's deals, but recently I've been past six, seven months, I look at other people's deals. I was just intrigued by different types of investment structures out there, right? So why not you talk to us about, you know, what is the most popular investment structures? Uh, because I think this is where I think, I think the passive investors need to learn and how how to structure an investment and you know, some some investment structure are high risk uh, in terms of a passive investor some are low risk or is there such thing at all why not you tell about your perspective and what are the different types of investment structure that you think exists out there well okay the legal structure mm -hmm. let's let's take this first uh, we do an awful lot of business james and uh, we use the limited liability company, the LLC, as the legal structure. And uh, the reason for that is it benefits both the passives and the manager. It benefits the manager because the manager ha has limited liability as opposed to in a limited partnership where the general partner is totally liable. You, you really don't want that liability. So it's good for the manager. And then for the investors, it's great for the passives because uh, the passives can vote. In a limited partnerships, the passives can't vote. They have, they have protection, liability protection, but they can't vote. But in an LLC, James, they can not only vote and take part in some of the decisions, but they retain their limited liability. So as far as legal structure goes, uh, that's the most, but far and away the most common structure. Now, as far as it gets down to deals, I'm gonna use three different definitions. First of all, there's the specific property offering. That's when I come to you, James, and I say, I found this opportunity in a particular property. We're gonna buy this property. All the money is gonna be spent on this property. Okay, so wouldn't you think that would be something that investors would look at and, and feel pretty comfortable with that because they know what they're getting, they can see pictures, they can drive by it if it's close. Uh, that's probably in, in the range of what I'm going through, the least risky of the structures. The next structure would be semi-specific. Let's say I've been buying apartment buildings and I'm pretty good at it and I've got a track record and I'm getting a little better at my fundraising. So maybe I find a property I'd like to buy and I get a letter of intent and I put it under contract. And then I go to the attorney and say, you know, it's gonna take us $2 million to buy this property on Front Street. But as long as I'm going through all this process, I'd like to raise 5 million and see with the money I raise, if I can go out and buy another property. I don't know where it is, I don't know what it is, 
but I have a business plan that it's going to be, you know, 50 to 100 units, and it's going to be financed like this, and it's going to be a cap rate, and geographically, this is where it is. So you have a property that everyone can look at, and then you have a plan to buy another property. Well, that's a little riskier, right, James, because we don't have that second property, right? But we do have the first property. And then the most risky is just the blind pool, where I, if I have a track record, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest anyone try this without a track record, and I wouldn't suggest any passive investor invest unless there's a track record of the sponsor. Uh, the sponsor can go out and just raise money and say, you know, I have a business plan. I'm going to buy multifamily in a particular geography, a particular size, a particular price range, a particular cap rate, and send me the money and I'm going to go do that. Well, the positives of that are that's an acquisition strategy approach. Now the syndicators in the marketplace, James, with cash and can compete with the other cash buyers, 1031 buyers, and can prove up funds. So that's pretty good. But as far as the passives go, we really don't know what, what we're going to buy. And we've already given our money to the syndicator, and the syndicator is going to go out and buy something. Uh, the business plan is kind of like handcuffs on the syndicator. He can't, he can't take the money and decide to go out and buy a, uh, a Walgreens or something. He's going to buy whatever he said he was going to buy. But I think in the area of risk, uh, specific is less risky, semi-specific is a little more, and blind pools are the most risky. And uh, they all today would be in a, um, in a limited liability company. If, if you see a limited partnership out there, it's probably because the sponsor thinks they're going to have some Canadian investors and Canadian investors have to invest in a, in a limited partnership uh, because um, for Canadian investors, an LLC is double tax like a corporation is. So uh, they don't want that. So that's the answer to that question. Got it, got it. So that's very interesting because I know I, I used to do just a direct uh, property by property. And at some point I was looking at semi, semi blind pool and, and you know, uh, blind pool as well, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't do it because, you know, as you said, you need to really know uh, whether you have a property. You have to convince the investors and the strategy and all that. I mean, uh, but you know, um, I, I really was doing more the deal specific. Uh, you know, right. uh, money. Well, raised, James, the much one easier. of the benefits, one of the benefits of a blind pool, mm -hmm. and, and you have to have this to sell it, is diversification. We're going to put your money and we're going to buy two or three properties. Okay, so if one's bad, one's bad, but the other two are good. You would never, you'd never raise any money, I don't think. I would never advise anyone to try to do a blind pool for one property. Just give me your money and I'll go out and find something. Because I think that's a double sell. First of all, you'd have to sell the investor on giving you the money in the first place. And then when you find the property, I think you stand the risk of the investors saying, oh, no, not that property. And you have to <laughs> right. give them the money back. So I think that's, I think that's. Yeah, because, because you have a pool of uh, property and, you know, you put all your trust in the sponsor, right? So, so mm -hmm. let's talk about some of the, uh, the way syndication have changed in the past 27 years, right? When you started, I mean, you, you were a syndicate, I mean, before that you were a syndicate as well. 
can you describe what has changed in terms of the you know uh, gp general partnership you know uh, or passive investor what has changed in the past mm-hmm. 27 years because i'm sure because rec- i mean for me recently for the past maybe 10 years syndication become very popular a lot of people are getting to know about it but there must be a lot of things must have happened from the last time to le- for the past 10 years right can you can you tell based on your experience okay. what has changed well, when I started in uh, 1981, when I started syndicating full time, um, we used limited partnerships because at that time, the LLC had not been, uh, well, it had been invented in Wyoming in 79, but it wasn't anywhere else. So we did use limited partnerships. So that was how we started. Uh, the limited partners got protection, limited liability, but they couldn't vote. And then um, the manager could make all this, the general partner, excuse me, could make all the decisions, but had total liability. So here comes the 1986 and 1987 real estate crash uh, after the the tax law change. And uh, all of a sudden general partners knew what total liability meant. (laughs) And limited partners said, boy, if I could only have voted, maybe I could have helped save the property. So right after that, you know, the 87, the Tax Act of 86, which caused a huge real estate crash. um, Right after that, there was a slowdown in syndication because the general uh, partners didn't want to do it anymore. I mean, there was, there was blood on the street, James, from uh, getting destroyed from the financing and, and foreclosures. But all of a sudden, the states uh, caught on to what Wyoming had done. And in the late 80s, various states started um, passing their own limited liability company law, which, which was passed to um, promote capital formation by getting the, the people that used to be general partners, getting them interested in raising capital again by giving them limited liability. All about that. And getting the passive, the people who were limited partners, getting them interested in investing again, because not only did they have limited liability, which they'd always had, but now they could vote. So James, there was there was a big, a big change. And about the same time, uh, Regulation D was modified to introduce something called the Rule 506. And in Rule 506, they said, you know, you can raise as much funding as you want from as many accredited investors. Well, they never really had defined accredited investors until that time. So you can raise as much money as you want from as many accredited investors and 35 people who weren't accredited, but who were smart, um, but you couldn't advertise. Well, one of the things that was good about that is it let me as a sponsor raise money from 35 sophisticated investors, which I couldn't do before. And it defined what an accredited investor was, a million dollars net worth, 200 or $300,000 income. We never had that definition. So now we knew exactly what we were going to, what we could do. And so here was Gene as a syndicator. 
I could go out and raise as much money as I wanted from as many accredited investors and 35 sophisticated investors, but I couldn't, I didn't know where to find the accredited investors. I didn't know where to find the sophisticated investors because I couldn't advertise. And they couldn't find me. Okay, because there was no place, I had no public presence. So the next real change was in 2012 with the Jobs Act. And the Jobs Act came along and said, Gene, what if we let you advertise? What if we let you advertise and go out and find all the accredited investors there are? And why don't we let you advertise in such a way so that all the accredited investors that are out there, and, and James have like 16 million households with accredited investors, we'll let all of them find you because you, could, you can use social media, you can make a website, you can tell everyone what you do. It's just that since you don't know anyone, we're gonna have third party verification that your investors are accredited. You can't take any sophisticated investors, just accredited, raise all the money you want and advertise. So that was the big change. So the change was going from limited partnership to LLC. The change was bringing out 506 and the definition of accredited investors and sophisticated investors. And then the Jobs Act, where now you can go out and advertise and find people that you don't know to invest with you. Those are the three major changes in, in my career, James. Got it, got it. Yeah, that's very interesting because you have gone through the entire change process. So it's very interesting to really see how it evolved, right? And what was the reason behind, right? Uh, and, and that was really good learning for me. So, uh, and, and, and this is one thing that I wanna ask you because I heard you on another uh, webinar where you talk about how does a, a capital account being treated on a syndication, right? So can you give our audience, um, you know, some kind of education on how capital account, you know, is being handled differently throughout uh, investment structure on different types of syndication? What is more risky? What is sure. less risky and all that? Sure, well, this comes down to two issues. Number one issue is the IRS wants to measure what you have in your investment. And so they give everyone a capital account, okay? And your capital account starts out at zero. Then you make a deposit. Let's say you put $100,000 in an investment. Your capital account has now gone up to $100,000, okay? And let's say you, um, in the first year, you get a dividend check, you get a distribution check from the investment of 10,000. Well, now you no longer have 100 in the deal, you now have 90 in the deal. And let's say in that year, you also were given a, a tax loss on your K-1 of, uh, $10,000. So now you don't have 90 in the deal. Now, according to their bookkeeping, you only have 80 in the deal. And so that capital account goes on during the life of the deal. It can always be increased if you put more money in the deal, and it can always be increased if you have to report income. So there are four things, money in, 
money out, taxable income reported, taxable losses reported. And when it's all said and done, you're going to have a balance in your capital account the day that the property sells. And the deal there is if you have a negative in your capital account, let's say you've taken more than 100,000 in cash flow and you've taken losses, your capital account is negative. Well, you started out with a zero capital account and you have to end up with zero. So the cash we give you from the sale is going to increase your capital account back to zero. And how do we increase a capital account? We would increase it by giving you cash, by having you invest cash, which you're not doing. We increase your capital account by having you report taxable income. So that's how the, uh, the sale, the taxable income you have to report is calculated by taking whatever your capital account balance is back up to zero. Everyone starts at zero and everyone ends at zero. And it's, it's, it's a mystery to most people because each year they get at the end of the year, they get a, a K-1. And I had, I, when I was syndicating James, I had all sorts of people call me and say, Gene, I put $100,000 in this deal and I got my first K-1 from you and it says I have $92,000. What happened? Well, then you have to explain to them that the reason it went from 100 to 92, you know, a couple of things might've happened. Did you get some cash flow? Did you get some losses? Did you pay some taxes? Whatever, okay. It has nothing to do really with the check that you got because the check is just cash. The capital account is cash and taxable income. So we've got that side of the accounting that the CPA does. Now, the other side is after the property is op has been operated for a year and there's money in the bank, maybe the sponsor, the syndicator is gonna send some money to the passives, send them a check. Well, that's just like earning interest on your bank account. You put $100,000 in your bank account, you're in 10% interest. You go down to the bank and you pull $10,000 because at the end of the year, you have 110,000 in your account. You pull 10,000, which is all your money, interest income, and you still have $100,000 in the investment. Well, right away, you can see that that's different than capital accounting, okay? Now we're talking about what was the return on your investment? The return on your investment, if we're using the bank as an example, was 10%, great. If you pulled $20,000 out of your account, you would have pulled 10,000 of interest, which is a return on your money, and 10,000 of your money. So now the balance in your account is just 90,000. So we're talking apples and oranges here, right? Apples so, and oranges. So one is the tax world, one is the investment world, right? Well, yeah, the capital account is strictly the tax world. Okay. And uh, the other account is cash world. Where yeah. here's where it gets interesting. Let's go back to the fact that I put $100,000 in my investment, in my LLC, and I own $100,000. And they send me at the end of the year, $10,000. And they say, 
this is the return on your investment from operations of the property. Well, 10,000 compared to my 100,000 looks like 10% cash on cash, right? Okay. So I got a 10% cash on cash. Great. I still have $100,000 in the deal. Next year, I get 8,000. Boy, I got an 8% cash on cash. When the deal sells, I get my $100,000 back and share what's, what's left in the bank. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy to do. That's if, in fact, when you read the document, the sponsor says, we're gonna treat cash that comes from the property, at, from operations as a return on your investment. Some sponsors say, no, when we send you a check, we're gonna account for it as being a return of your investment. So in my example, I invest 100, they send me a check for 10, and now they say I only have $90,000 left in my investment. Does that make sense, James? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But usually there's nobody, a problem there. Nobody talks there's about $90,000. Right? They just say, here's 10000 right? Yeah, yeah. No, but the problem is you can't say I'm sending you $10,000 of your money back and tell you you got a 10% return on your money. Correct. correct. You got $10,000 of your money back. Hmm. So, so is that is that even a profit or is that even a no it's not even a, the way they're counting on it it's a return of their money because they're going to keep track until until you get let's say 10 years of ten thousand dollars they're going to say you've got all your money back and let's say the property sells at the end of 10 years and let's say um your pro rata share would be two hundred thousand okay if you got all your money back and the document says, well, we're gonna give the investor all their money back and then we're gonna split what's left over 50-50. Well, they've already said you got all your money back. So here's the 200,000 sitting there that they're gonna take half of. But if your checks had been the return on your investment each year, you've been getting a 10% interest each year, now you get to the end, you still have $100,000 in your account. There's 200,000 that's your share. You get 100 to give you your money back. And then we split the 100 50-50. If you follow that, it's kind of hard without doing it on a whiteboard. If you follow that, the bottom line is when you invest in a deal, and the sponsor says, everything we give you is gonna be a return of your money. Number one, the sponsor cannot call that cash on cash because that's fraudulent, okay? He can say, we're gonna give you a distribution of 10%. That's not fraudulent, but it's not cash on cash. It's just a distribution of your original investment. And number two- Can, can, they, say it's a, can they say it's a cash flow of 10%? Well, yeah, yeah, but you can't put a percentage out. Well, it's a distribution of 10% based on your original okay. investment. Okay. It's not earning. It's not a return so on. So they can't say it's a 10%. They can, they can just say, I'm giving you 10,000. I'm giving you 10,000, which is based, it's a 10% distribution on your original investment. There's nothing wrong with saying that, but okay. it's not earnings. It's not earnings, okay. 
Okay. And then the last thing is when you get to the sale, uh -huh. the 50-50 split benefits the sponsor because you get you get to the 50-50 split faster if all the cash flow during operations is just considered a return of their investment. Yeah. yeah. The pie, the pie to cut at the back is much larger. Much larger for the sponsor. Now that rule. Mm -hmm. uh, benefits the sponsor. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. It just benefits the sponsor. My most prolific syndicator, James, you'll love this, is um, since 2014, when I started working with him, has done 116 offerings with me, James, yeah. raising between five and 10 million at a time. And his cash distribution pattern is 12%. Eight is a return on and four is a return of. So we say that the distribution is 12 based on your original investment, but then we break it down and tell you what did you earn and what's an early return of your principal. So you could do it, you could do it that yeah, way. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, I think as long as you're getting profit, like a reasonable 8% profit on your money and yeah. the remaining you can put under capital, I think, I think that's mm -hmm. a fair game, right? So. But don't you think that when people giving, like, let's say, for example, you're getting just 8% cash on cash, uh, cash, I mean, cash, distrib I don't know, it's very tricky to make sure that we don't say cash, cash on cash, right? because it's not really cash. Oh, no, that would be fraudulent. That yeah. would be fraudulent. Correct. Be fraudulent. So when they said, I'm giving you 8% distribution, and let's say for next five years, you're giving 8%, 8%, 8%. thing is you're not really making money, right? So that means your money is actually, lo you're losing money because- No, in, in that accounting, Mm -hmm. Okay, in that accounting, everything is a return of, and in your example, we're now down to only having 60000 in the fund, in, in the cash distribution accounting. Property sales, there's $200,000 available for your share. You get sixty to return the balance, and then there's 140 left that'll be split 50-50. Yeah. So what's the risk to passive investor when they do that? Well, the risk is not understanding. You know, I'm thinking that maybe the risk is going out and spending all that money when you think you're earning it. But okay. don't you think that if I put 100,000, I didn't make money for next five years because I'm just getting back my own capital, right? Well, in the end, when you go to calculate it, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's you're just getting back your own money. Mm -hmm. And it's a promise to make money at the sale because the only time you make money is at the sale. Well, right. Well, let's let's look at it this way. Let's say that we invest a hundred thousand, mm -hmm. and the first five years there's twenty thousand dollars distributed to us each year. Okay, but then we continue to go on and run the property. Well, from then on, everything that comes to us is earnings. Mm -hmm. But that's after five years, right? So we got all of our money back. So. And that is what's on the sale tax-wise. What's on the sale is all the return of your capital on the sale is just a return of capital. Anything more than that is another return on capital. So right. we have two worlds. We have capital accounting and we have cash. And yeah. some of the sponsors who do return of say, well, that's what the accountant does. The accountant does that in the K-1. Well, I've already said that the K-1 has four things going on not just cash in and cash out, it has taxable income and taxable losses. 
So it isn't just crystal clear that the K1 represents cash. It represents two other things. So you can't compare them. So in the tax world, what you're saying is whether you do return off capital, return on capital, it's the same in the tax world. Is that right? Oh, it doesn't make any difference, yeah. Okay. No, okay. They're, they're right. The sponsors will say when we send your check back, it reduces your capital account. That's absolutely correct. Got but, it. But that's the same even on you to return on capital, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just a uh, just different way of doing it. So one is what you say is passive risk is, did not understanding, right? Uh, but what- Yes, what that's, that's right. Not understanding. And, and, and I know my documents say specifically at the end of the description of uh, cash distribution on operations and cash distribution on capital account. We have a little paragraph in there that says specifically if we're, if we're doing return on or return of. And when I, and I do return of for clients and we make a descriptive paragraph so that no one is surprised. I think that one of the issues, have you read my book? Uh, I do have your book. I think I read okay. a few chapters of it, yes. Yeah, I've got a chapter on- That was like five uh, years ago. When the, when yeah, the book well, first came out, I'm sure there's a lot of ref that came out after that, right? Uh, on, uh, I've got a chapter in there on accounting and it goes through, the, it goes through a sample project showing you um, the individual's capital account, the mm -hmm. company's capital account, the basis and all that in, in an example. And I question whether every sponsor understands it. I actually will tell you that I did a presentation for a CPA group a couple of weeks ago and in my, my Zoom broadcast, I had to have four questions, a polling question. And one of the questions I asked was, when your clients come to you and talk to you about the distribution pattern in their PPM and their operating agreement. Do they come to you before uh, they write it and get their investors, or do they come to you afterwards? And the, the huge majority of the accountants said, "Well, they come after they've already raised money." <laughs> so we've got we've got clients out there who haven't really asked their CPA if this is the right way to do it. That's frightening. Got it, got it. So why do a passive want to invest in that kind of structure where there's a return of capital? Let's say, I, let's say I'm a passive and I understand this is return of capital. Why do you think it's beneficial for that kind of structure compared to return on capital? I think at the disposition of the asset, at, at the capital event, refinance or sale, it's more beneficial to the sponsor if everything has been treated as a return of capital. That's what I think. Okay. Less beneficial to the investor. Yeah, because I think sometimes uh, I hear people do the sale saying that I'm, I'm reducing your risk because I'm giving back all your capital upfront. Well, that isn't the case, so. Uh, they really aren't giving you your capital, giving you cash. You get the same amount of cash either way. The question is, how are we going to calculate the ending split? That's the issue. Yeah, and the ending split is usually projected to be, you know, you're making money on the sales, right? So, right. but sometimes you may ne never make money, right? I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, right. So if you're not making money during the operations, basically you're not making money during operation. 
And at the sales, you're basically making a promise that you may make money because sales happen five years down the road. No right. one knows what's going to happen on the economy, right? So, and almost everyone writes their offerings that at the sale, the investors get the return of their capital, of their unreturned capital, and any check if there's been a preferred return that hasn't been paid, and then there's the split. So that's always the pattern. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say always, 90% that's the pattern. Sometimes the pattern is just on the split, on the sale we do 80-20. I have a lot of experienced uh, syndicators, James, who don't do preferred returns. They just do 80-20 splits on everything, period. Yeah, that's another thing uh, because, yeah, what you mentioned just now is where on the sale, they're supposed to give back to make the investor whole again, right? But mm-hmm. some syndication doesn't do that. They just split everything, right? So that's mm-hmm. basically if you buy in day one and sell in day two, you you lost 20% of your money if it's 80-20 split. Right, right. Right, so, okay. okay. I think it's just different structures and how people want to do it and, you know, whether investors are, you know, um, comfortable with that or not, right? So, so it makes it makes a difference whether you read your documents and understand them. So when you go out and talk to passives about what they should do, which I know you do, mm-hmm. you should uh, uh, dwell on the fact that they should read read the document. Now, if they're, if they're investing for the fifth time with the same sponsor, chances are the documents are the same, but you never know. You never know. So you've so, got to read the document. Where, where do passive investors go to, to understand the structure? Because um... they go to your school. <laughs> okay. they, classes, they find mentors like you. Okay. I don't mentor passives. Okay. I mentor syndicators. Okay. And I, there's conflict there. So I, I just, my world is, is syndicators. And I do a lot of education-based marketing, James. Mm, got it. Training syndicators. You know, I have classes for rookies. And a rookie is it may have a lot of real estate experience, but they've never done a syndication. So I only let rookies in the class. And that's a pretty eye-opening event. So got it, got it. <laughs> One of the questions I have for you is I've seen syndicators nowadays creating a separate account compared to the NOI of that asset to do distribution for the investors, right? Like for example, they, they overraise the money, right? Into a separate account while they stabilize the property, or, you know, while they and stabilize- And they send the investors their money back. Correct. Yeah, okay. they, they, they do oh. this. So what do you think about that? <laughs> Depending upon, okay, I have a couple of thoughts. Depending upon how they word that, that's wrong. If they say we're going to give you a 6% preferred return and they raise 12% extra, okay, and put it in the bank and say, that's the money I'm going to send you back. A preferred return is a return on its earnings. All you're doing is sending people some of their money back. And if you don't tell them, you're just sending their money back to them. That's fraud. And I wonder why an investor would want to give you that extra 12% to put in the bank just so they can give you a check so you can buy groceries. Why don't they keep that 12% themselves? See, I think that's fraud. And I don't think it's a great sales technique to tell people we're raising a lot of money and then we're gonna send you your money back. Just 
just tell them we won't be able to make any distributions for a year. Almost every offering I write has a six, nine, or 12 month delay in, uh, in the distribution. Do you think someone who puts $50,000 in your deal needs a $12 check every month to buy groceries? Well, a lot of, no, lot of, uh, lot of syndicators uh, are doing it. I mean, I'm, I'll be very- Well, open. I think that's wrong. I think it's wrong, unless you tell them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. well, they claim everybody knows, but I can bet you oh, no, they one, don't. no one they knows. They don't claim everyone knows. <laughs> and I always because wonder how I like... think they want money. And, and, and I can yeah. tell you why they're doing it, because they want to juice up the investors so they can keep on investing, because these, these people do deals every month. So when investors see that, oh, I'm getting like 8 to 10% return on day one, oh, I can, when's your next deal? That's the next question they invest. So they keep yeah, on- Yes, if I, sent you, if I sent you your money back, but you know, that's kind of interesting. If you're paying a preferred return, you're paying a preferred return on that extra money you raise just to give the people their own money back. So that's a burden for the, uh, that's a burden for the sponsor. Now, all I'm gonna say is that that isn't explained correctly and that should be in the sources and uses uh, table in, of, of what you're doing. Uh, that should be identified as a line item. If you don't do that right, you run the risk of being accused of uh, a fraud. Yeah, I think it's all inside the CapEx budget. It's not a separate line item. Nobody that's puts a line item that's that- not this, CapEx. Well, that's, that's not true. CapEx. Nobody puts uh, money to pay investors a uh, line well, item. Well, then they're all, then they're, you know, <laughs> I've said enough. This is, you know, this is, I'm in good spirit today. Because, because as we're talking, we're getting close to the Christmas holidays and I'm in good spirit. But I'm good telling spirit. you, that is fraud. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean, for fraud. me, for me, I always say, wait until I stabilize the deal. And all my investors are happy to wait because they know we want to sure. get money from the investors, right? But, but there are quite a number of uh, syndicators out there. They say, oh, close it, close today. Next month, you start getting checks and this is a value-add deal. And when I calculate their mortgage and payment, you can never get that 8%, right? So, and and they, I mean, this is a post that I did in my LinkedIn and, and everybody consensus was, yeah, of course they're over-raising and paying back. They said, just make the investors happy. So why you want to do that, right? I mean, you are not doing the right thing, right? And But I didn't know that preferred return supposed to be a return on investment. On earning, right. Okay. A 6%, okay. Anytime you put a percentage number after it, it's, it's supposed to be a measure of return on your investment. And so, yeah. so I'm gonna give you a 6% return on your investment, but I'm gonna send you your money back because that's always the magic. Can you tell the difference in the offering between the return of someone's money and the return on someone's money? Yeah. That's very important. Yeah, and sometimes Let's it's not get very- off of that topic. Let's get off of that topic and let's not go to the topic where people are asking other people to raise money for them. <laughs> I don't want to go on that topic either. Okay. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Well, I want to go with that too. <laughs> the, the equity raises, but that's okay. We will, we, we'll cover it in a, in a, in a different. Uh, Ask podcast. me back. <laughs> Can I give you four questions that I think the passive investors should ask? Sure. They absolutely. Do that. do that. Okay. Um, Number question number one, James, I like your deal. Uh, it's got a $50,000 minimum. I can invest the $50,000. But my question to you, James, is what happens if something happens to you? 
who, who's the backup, right, that you have, right? Yeah, what, where's the continuity? Who's the backup? I will not write uh-huh. an offering for James if James comes to me and he says, no, I'm going to be the individual uh-huh. manager. I'm going to be an LLC. I'm going to be the individual member, the sole member, and that's all I'm going to be. Well, you go somewhere else because that's not safe for the investors. Not at all. Plus, but the bank's not going to go along with that. Uh, yeah, we always have backup springing members and all you've got to have continuity so when as i said i don't really counsel uh passives but if a passive called me and said will you look at these documents i would say well here's the four questions i would ask of these documents first question is if it's an individual manager uh don't invest number two mm-hmm. james have you done this before okay all of us have had to answer that question. No, I've never put together a syndication. I've never put together an offering. I have my own real estate investment history and my own education, all that. But no, I haven't, I haven't done an offering. Well, tell them the truth. And then one of my big important things is you got to make, you got to get that first deal done and make it a success. Don't try to raise 30 million on your first deal. Do a little deal. So when I ask James, James, have you done this before? James can say, hell yes, Gene, once. Good enough, good enough, track record, good enough. You gotta get started somewhere. Third question, James, are you gonna invest any money? Are you gonna have a skin in the game? Okay, skin in the game is one of two things. It's James Cash, gonna buy some units, just like I am, and the fact that James has to sign on the mortgage. I don't care if it's a non-recourse mortgage. James is signing on the mortgage. Both of those things show me that James has skin in the game, right? And number four, James, I'm 72 years old. You say that your holding period on this project is somewhere between seven and 10 years. What, what's gonna happen if my family needs my money out of this deal? How do I get my And your answer is, well, we have a well-drafted operating agreement. And in articles 12 and 13, we talk about liquidity, whether it's voluntary or it's forced. And we can go over that together and you'll see that we've made arrangements for that for you. Okay. Those are the four questions. James, I never asked, what's the yield? I never asked, what's the NOI? I never ask what's the price per door. I never ask any of that stuff. I want to know if there's continuity so my money's safe. I want to know if 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 you've done this before so my money's safe. I want to know if you have money in the deal or your name on the line so my money's safe. And then I want to know if there's a liquidity provision so if I need it my money's safe. That's what I would ask. That's very interesting. Uh, thank you for that. That's that's really uh, a good direct points to uh, you know any passive investors, right? Gene, we are at the sure, end and of. If you're, the- and James, James, if you're an active, if you're the sponsor, you better have answers to all those questions. Oh right? yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> there you go. And we want to sure. make sure we take our investors all the time, right? Because anything can happen, and you know anything can happen to anyone, right? So we want to just make sure that we take mm-hmm. care of everyone. So Gene, why not you tell our audience how to get hold of you and um, you know how to get uh, in touch uh, okay. in contact with you. James, I've been telling them the whole time. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a good bot behind, right? That's in YouTube, but we have to tell it to the podcast listeners on the in the yeah. who's, who's listening. Oh, to it's, it's a verbal well. one. Okay. So yeah. my my website is Trowbridge Law Group, and Trowbridge is T R O W Bridge TrowbridgeLawGroup.com, and my email is Gene at TrowbridgeLawGroup.com. And I'm, I'll just give you my direct phone number, 949, in California, 949-855-8399. Free consultations, call me with your questions. Love to talk to you, love to get to, uh, to know you. And one of the things we do that I'm proud about, we have something called TLG Talks. TLG stands for Trowbridge Law Group. But TLG Talks, we have a YouTube channel uh, it's YouTube at Trowbridge Law. And uh, right now we're running a series of interviews where I've interviewed 16 people that are part of this industry. And uh, they're about half hour interviews and we're playing them on, uh, on YouTube. And they broadcast live every Thursday at 12 o'clock uh, Pacific time uh, for a half an hour. And uh, we've had some really interesting, uh, we've had uh, 14 syndicators uh, one person would never do a syndication who's extremely successful, and that was an interesting interview. And another person who's a rookie who's come to us from my rookie class and is getting started, and that itself was an interesting interview. So uh, YouTube, Trowbridge Law, and you can look at all sorts of stuff we have there. So that's it, James. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Thank you. That's it. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.